I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Series 1, Chapter 6, Unity in Variety, Session 2. In the first session of Chapter 6, we discussed how unity in variety may be discerned in Shakespeare's use of words and of images. Today, let's see how we can find unity in variety represented in figures of speech, in action, in scene, in character, and in plot. Like words and images, figures of speech, too, contribute to a play's unity. Romeo and Juliet is a play filled with oxymorons, from the Greek oxys, sharp, and moros, foolish. An oxymoron is a phrase that is pointedly foolish because it intentionally contradicts itself, like hot ice or cold fire. Romeo has one whole speech filled with oxymorons, and Juliet another. Here are some of Romeo's oxymorons in Act 1, Scene 1, lines 176 to 182. Why then, O brawling love, O loving hate, O anything of nothing first create? O heavy lightness, serious vanity, misshapen chaos of well-seeming forms, feather of lead, bright smoke, cold fire, sick health, still waking sleep, that is not what it is. This love feel I that feel no love in this. Here are some of Juliet's in Act 3, Scene 2, lines 73 to 79. O serpent heart hid with a flowering face! Did ever dragon keep so fair a cave? Beautiful tyrant, fiend angelical, dove-feathered raven, wolvish ravening lamb, despised substance of divinest show, just opposite to what thou justly seemst, a damned saint, an honorable villain. But Shakespeare is up to more than just playing with this rhetorical device. He has taken the rhetorical device of the oxymoron as a unifying principle for the play as a whole, not only for its phrases, but for its characters and plot. Romeo and Juliet is a tragedy of opposites, lovers from families that hate, youth in conflict with age, marriage and killing on one day, hope and despair, fate and defiance of fate, healing and poison, rash haste and agonizing delay. What hate divides, love joins. What love initiates, death ends. The whole play is built on the joining of opposites. One almost cannot speak of this play except in oxymorons. Action, too, like words, images, and figures of speech, can contribute to unity. Consider Richard II. Just as the form of Romeo and Juliet is built on the oxymoron, so Richard II is built on the rhetorical device called chiasmus, the mirror image, or ABBA structure I discussed in the third session of Chapter 4. Henry rises as Richard falls. Merit comes to power as right declines. As the play proceeds, we feel the focused, strong-minded, kingly qualities of Henry as he grows step by step into a strong and capable king. At the same time, we see the weak, self-indulgent, sentimental qualities of the rightful but incompetent King Richard as his abuses of the kingship bring him closer and closer to being deposed. In the middle of the play, 
the two movements cross when the kings both have their hands on the crown as one is handing it over to the other. The chiasmus of speech, I, no, no, I, at Act 4, Scene 1, Line 201, illuminates this chiasmus of action, the crossing of the paths of the falling king and the rising king. Then, at the very end of the play, Henry begins to suffer the troubles that come from his having deposed the rightful king. At the same time, Richard, in prison and about to be killed, is moved to a burst of uncharacteristic nobility, another chiasmic reversal. What is the meaning of these contrasting events? The variety of movements, up from banishment to kingship, down from kingship to prison and death, are a representation of the up-and-down movement of English history toward a single truth. England can be well only if her king has both right and merit. There is no stability in a rightful king without merit, like Richard, and none in a meritorious king without clear right, like Henry. Henry's son, Prince Hal, knows this, and will strive to unite them both in himself for the good of the Commonwealth. His effort is recorded in the following three plays of the Tetralogy, Henry IV, Part I and Part II, and Henry V. Let's now add minor scenes to our list of the means by which Shakespeare achieves unity in a play. Small, seemingly non-dramatic scenes in Shakespeare are no less contributory to the play's unity of meaning than big ones. The old man and Ross in Macbeth who in Act Two, Scene Four, Lines One through Twenty, lists the forms of chaos seen in the natural world on the night of Duncan's murder, reinforce our comprehension of the significance of Macbeth's crime. The little mini scene at the beginning of Act Three, Scene Two of Hamlet, comprising Hamlet's speeches to the players, is central to the philosophical meaning of the play. In Richard II, the condition of England is reflected in a small scene. Act 3, Scene 4, Lines 54 to 66, in which a gardener compares the king's garden he keeps to the kingdom of England. Bolingbroke, that is Henry IV, hath seized the wasteful king. Oh, what pity is it that he, meaning Richard, had not so trimmed and dressed his land as we this garden. We at time of year do wound the bark, the skin of our fruit trees, lest being overproud in sap and blood, with too much riches it confound itself. Had he done so to great and growing men, they might have lived to bear and he to taste their fruits of duty. Superfluous branches we lop away, that bearing boughs may live. Had he done so, himself had borne the crown, which waste of idle hours hath quite thrown down. In Henry IV, Part I, the state of the local inn discussed by the two carriers in Act II, Scene One serves a similar function. This house is turned upside down since Robin Ostler died. An ostler, or hosteler, was the caretaker of the horses and mules of travellers stopping at an inn. The traveller here implies that England is turned upside down since King Richard's, or perhaps King Edward III's, time. It always pays to attend to the little scenes. Of course, characters too contribute to a play's unity. 
In the podcast of Chapter 5, I discussed Shakespeare's use of foils and took for my examples Hamlet and Henry IV, Part 1. Now we can better understand what that complex use of foils accomplishes. The similarities between different characters sharpen our awareness of their differences, and their differences sharpen our awareness of the thematic unity of the play. There could hardly be two more different characters than the fat, self-indulgent, cowardly Sir John Falstaff and the intense, battle-hungry, brave Hotspur. Yet both talk a lot about honor, and in opposite ways, both miss the bullseye of honor. Falstaff misses it because he doesn't care for honor at all. He'd like to be thought honorable, but not by risking anything to earn the good name. I would to God thou and I knew where a commodity of good names were to be bought, says he, at Act 1, Scene 2, lines 82 to 83. Bought, not earned. He wants to save his skin whatever the cost to his reputation. Hotspur says he wants honor, but it is glorious reputation that he really wants, reputation to be gained by winning in battle against no matter what opponent. Moved by the idea of victory for its own sake, he fails to see the dishonor in causing a civil war. Prince Hal, who appears to everyone but the audience to be dishonorable, turns out to be the representative of true honor in the play. He shows us that honor lies neither in other people's impressions nor in winning battles. It lies in right action based upon right thought. It lies even in getting a bad reputation when such a sacrifice serves the good of the commonwealth. It is all the characters together that lead us to this underlying truth about honor. That is the unity within this remarkable variety. Similarly, in Hamlet, the characters Hamlet, Laertes, Fortinbras, Horatio, Claudius, the gravedigger, and others shed light on the question of revenge, of how to do the right thing when doing the wrong thing might lead to hell. In King Lear, all the characters in the play support the two main characters, Lear and Gloucester, in contributing to the theme of the purgatorial potential in human suffering. The most obvious element of a play that contributes to its unity is the main story it is telling, the plot. But Shakespeare adds subplots for variety, not to divide or weaken, but to enhance and deepen the play's unity. What the scholars call a subplot is a story secondary to the main one. It unfolds among different characters in a different situation. A subplot is used not simply to vary our attention, and to build suspense for the main plot, though it does do these things. The real point of a good subplot is to reinforce the meaning of the whole. The meaning of the play comes through the relation between the subplot and the main plot. In this art, as in many others, Shakespeare is supreme. One of the greatest examples is in King Lear. In the main plot, a king has three daughters, two of whom are evil, and do their best to destroy their father, and one of whom is good, though the king does not realize it until he has disowned her and suffered profoundly. In the subplot, an earl has two sons, the elder legitimate and loving, the younger a bastard and a villain. The subplot is so well developed that it could easily make a whole play by itself. 
Early in both plots, the evil children overthrow their fathers, warring against the order of nature and society. This happens in large part because of the moral and spiritual blindness of the fathers. The contrasts between the two plots emphasize their parallel structure. The good children are the youngest daughter and the older son. The evil are the older daughters and the younger son. The king bestows his kingdom on the evil daughters, not realizing they will try to ruin him. The earl bestows his earldom on the evil younger son, not realizing that the younger son has tricked him into believing his elder son is a villain. Both fathers are self-deluded. During the course of the play, both learn their errors. The earl's moral blindness is punished and purged by his being physically blinded, the king's irrational egotism is punished and purged by his going mad. Why tell the story twice? Isn't one version of it enough? But it is just here that Shakespeare's genius comes to fullness. Because the most important relation between the stories is not that they are similar tales. In being similar, they become two versions of one tale. The Earl, Gloucester, has committed the specific sin of adultery. He is later physically blinded. When he wants to die, he tries to jump off a cliff. His evil son is literally a bastard who worships nature and wants to gain the Earl's and the legitimate brothers land through breaking the laws of nature and of nations. The good son disguises himself as a mad beggar to escape his brother's trap. Thus, in the Earl's tale, the conflicts are explicit, external, visible, political, and practical. By contrast, in the King's tale, the conflicts are implicit, internal, invisible, emotional, and spiritual. The king's sin is not legally adultery, but when he disowns the good daughter and trusts the evil ones, he commits a kind of moral adultery. We recognize that all the more because Shakespeare has located the literal adultery elsewhere, bringing it to mind even as he gets it out of the way so that we can go more deeply into what moral adultery means. The loss of physical sight in the Earl prepares us to comprehend the deeper loss of rational understanding in the king. Where the Earl tries to commit suicide by jumping off an imaginary physical cliff, the king imagines he is in hell, and the vision of his good daughter is of a soul in bliss. While the Earl's good son, to disguise himself, sinks to the lowest level of humanity, a mad beggar, and then labors to help his father, the king's good daughter loses first an army and then her life in the effort to help her father. Pretend madness in the Earl plot becomes real madness in the King plot. Where the Earl is physically blinded and thereby comes to recognition of the external truth, the King is intellectually blinded, that is, he goes mad, and thereby comes to insight about the internal truth, and so on. What is accomplished by all this external-internal parallelism? By using the double plot, Shakespeare enables us to enter more deeply into the invisible realms of the soul than we could if the plot were single. 
having understood the significant relation between father and children in the more obvious subplot, we are awakened to the less easily visible spiritual mysteries of such relations in the main plot. One can point to parallel plots in almost every Shakespeare play, whether early in his career, two sets of twin brothers in the Comedy of Errors, three couples in The Taming of the Shrew, or late, four couples in The Winter's Tale, three sets of castaways in The Tempest. And always, in the midst of this variety, the interwoven plots draw us to the central meaning of the play, together making a deeply unified whole. In the next session, we'll look at the unity and variety to be discerned in setting and theme, and then bring ourselves too, the audience, into the mix. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Shakespeare.